this past week, as I was kind of preparing for this message, I was really kind of contemplating um, Christianity uh, because we're, we're going to be talking about something that is so core and central to it this morning. And I started just thinking to myself, like, man, Christianity, Christianity's crazy. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, like, ludicrous. Because one of the main tenets of Christianity is that you have to believe in something that you cannot prove and may even actually go against what you observe. You can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not saying that there's no evidence for it. I'm just simply saying you cannot prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it will actually ask you to put your faith in something that at times may seem to go against the reality that you are able to observe. Uh, There's a second reason, which is connected to the first reason, but is almost kind of like the direct opposite. And it's uh, simply this, that if you actually do believe, put your faith in that, simply believing, (laughs) so crazy, actually frees you from having to pay the punishment that the Bible says we all deserve. In other words, you get something free simply by believing in it that you can't earn or work for, and it's all yours simply through faith. To me, like, when I think about Christianity, sometimes I'm kind of like, man, that's... That really is kind of crazy. Like what I'm telling people they ought to give their lives to, that's wild. Uh, And then I started thinking, but maybe it's one of the sanest things to to believe and hold on to. Maybe it's one of the easiest things to have faith in. Because I, I realize everything in this world requires faith. Everything. If you don't believe that there is a God, I think that that actually requires crazy amounts of faith. Now, if you're here this morning and you're like, yo, I'm an atheist. I don't know that I really buy any of this stuff. Cool, I'm so glad that you're here. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. I hope that you'll just really be open and say, all right, if God, you're real, show up today. Uh, There are other folks that think God maybe exists. He maybe created some stuff, but then like, He's completely distanced himself, disconnected himself. Like he doesn't really care what we do or how we live or how we act. He hasn't really revealed himself. He's not active today in the world. I actually think that requires a whole ton of faith as well. For those that maybe say, you know what, I think science can answer every question. I think that requires crazy amounts of faith as well. You see, the truth is is that every single one of you in this room is a believer. The question isn't whether or not you're a believer. The question is, what do you put your faith in? See, every single one of us lives our lives. You can't live as a human being without having faith. Faith in something. Now, I'm not saying every single person on our planet actually really thinks through what they're putting their faith in. Many do, but not all. 
But the reality is, is that every single one of us places our faith in something. It's just what you place your faith in. That's actually the key question. That's actually the question that the Apostle Paul wants to engage with us in this morning. So what I'd love you to do is open up your Bibles, if you have it, to Romans chapter 4. That's the text that we're going to be in. But we're going to be uh, needing to kind of catch ourselves up on what's going on in this letter that Paul has written. So for the past two and a half chapters, I taught on this two weeks ago, past two and a half chapters, Paul's really been making an argument on why everybody on the face of the planet is not perfect. Every single person on the face of the planet is not perfect. And because you and I are not perfect, we deserve God's wrath. Seems pretty harsh, to be honest, all right? Without understanding it in context, understanding that wrath is simply the automatic response to sin. It's what has to happen, okay? I tried to show us how we all actually desire. We wouldn't want a God who isn't wrathful because wrath is simply connected to justice and every single one of us wants justice, at least for ourselves. We don't always want it applied equally to ourselves, right? Because we know how messed up we are. I know that about myself, at least. Two and a half chapters trying to explain why we're not perfect and what then we deserve. Now, uh, I will admit, I don't always like that, right? Because, well, I'm not perfect. I know myself. And I know a lot of you. And you're way worse than me. So, I mean, like, I don't know what, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm uh, as bad, I'm probably worse than the vast majority of us. And that's not me just blowing smoke. I feel that. I, I know who I am. I know the ways that I have issues of pride. I know how my sexuality is broken. I know the ways that I put myself above others. I know the times that I'm not kind or generous or as hospitable as God wants me to be. Like I, I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. And so when I think of the reality that perfection is the standard and how imperfect I am, I kind of feel like, man, that doesn't feel fair then. Right, because uh, the concept of being perfect when you know you're imperfect is, is like a hard one to swallow. But I suppose if I'm willing to say that, then the opposite has to be true as well. That if God is perfect, holy, set apart, then the concept of our imperfection also seems to be something that he can't tolerate, which is actually what Paul teaches us. What I, what I think is really interesting is the way Paul actually starts off this entire argument of why we need rescue, he doesn't start off by doing what I would probably do. I would probably try to sell you on the life that you can find in Christ. Like I'd be like, yo, it's so much better, and this and that. Paul doesn't actually try to do that. This is what Paul does. He doesn't try to sell us on why we should believe in the life that God offers. He starts off by trying to sell us that we should believe we don't even deserve the life that God offers. And it's interesting because as I started to ponder it, I was like, that's actually easier for me to buy. Because if somebody was trying to sell me on the life that Christ calls us to and, and tried to tell me that that was the better life, I may look around and think, eh, I don't know. Because quite honestly, uh, the media that we consume, the TV shows we watch, the music that we listen to, and I'm saying we, not just you, like we, like they paint a picture of something that looks really, really good on the outside. 
We often find that uh, the Hollywood version of American life, it rings a little hollow <laughs> at times, and maybe isn't as true as it looks to be. Maybe sleeping around with everybody that you possibly can and having all the money in the world and buying whatever you want whenever you want it. Maybe that it doesn't actually lead to, to the life that I want. But if I was starting out, I think I would still try to sell you on the life in Christ, like that that's a better life. Paul doesn't do that. Paul actually starts off and just says, you're messed up and you'll never get that life until you recognize that. You couldn't even have that life. You don't deserve that life. And the truth is, the more that I thought about it, I was like, that's actually easier for me to believe. Because <laughs> I know who I am. I know that I'm not perfect. I get it. And the more that I recognize that, the more that I'm like, ooh, maybe, maybe I do need some help. Maybe there is a reason. Well, that is what kind of sets us up for chapter 4. Chapter 4, uh, what I'd like to do with you this morning is I want to give you kind of a, a quick breakdown of the chapter, just real quick. And then what I'd like to do is basically walk through it together and kind of teach on it. And then uh, I'd like to make one application uh, with a story. So, uh, let's just look real quick at how the chapter itself breaks down, okay? Um, the first thing that we find out is that faith is something, or excuse me, yes, sorry, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul is trying to describe to us kind of what saving faith is and how it works, okay? So, faith is something completely different from works. Faith does not depend on any religious ceremony. In other words, uh, he uses the example of circumcision, because remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians, as well as Gentile Christians, but that understood the, Judea, uh, the Judaic faith that Christianity comes out of. Number three, faith is not related to the law. In other words, you can't be good enough. That's verses 13 to 17. And then faith rests in a promise that flies in the face of what is natural and normal. Key, right there, verses 18 through 25. We'll dive into that in a second. Now, uh, as we move into chapter 4, though, it's important to understand because Paul does this a lot. Paul asks a question that he wants to then uh, kind of use to introduce a new point or a new argument or, or something that he wants us to pay attention to. He's going to do that at the beginning of 4. But to understand why he's asking this question, we have to just foundationally ground ourselves in what he has just said in chapter 3, verse 25. So let's start there. Sorry, 23, uh, 23. Okay, so read this along with me, and then we'll jump right to four. For all have sinned, Paul says, and fall short of the glory or perfection of God. In other words, everybody sinned, nobody's perfect, we've all messed up, and therefore we all fall short of the perfection of God, the glory of God. Verse 24. This is a really thick verse, 24 and 25. I'll explain why in a second. And all are justified... That word justified, it's a legal term. It just means to be declared as righteous. You stand in front of the judge. Even though you're guilty, the judge declares you as righteous. You're scot-free. You get off. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Again, another thick word. Redemption means to be bought out of slavery. You are a slave to sin. That's what Paul's been saying. And now you have been redeemed, bought out of that. So somebody paid a price. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. The word atonement means to cover. It's the price that was paid, the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. 
Key word there, by faith. Now jump down to chapter four, verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, because again, remember, he's talking to Jews here. So he's like, yo, 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 Abraham's just our granddaddy, 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 okay? Y'all like came from him, all right? Y'all got a little piece of Abraham in you, all right? Now, unless you're Jewish, that's not true of us as Gentiles. I'm not Jewish, so, but Paul, remember who he's writing to. So he says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified, you see the connection to justified up above? If he was declared righteous by God, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he says, is it something that Abraham did? Did Abraham work, do the right things, and therefore he was given righteousness? Paul says, no. It wasn't something he did. It was something he believed. It was the faith he had that was credited to him as righteousness. Keep reading. Verse 3, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. In other words, if you work, you deserve to get paid. You do X, you get Y. He's trying to show that that's not what happened with Abraham. It's not because of something Abraham did that God was then in his debt. He says, no, instead, verse 5, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies, declares as righteous the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David speaks the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David also talked about this. King David said, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That's a question I'm going to get to in just a second. We'll answer it a little bit further down in the text. But I just want to look back at verse 3. What does Scripture say? In this moment, Paul actually quotes, remember uh, Dr. Burge a few weeks ago told us that Paul is quoting Old Testament scripture all over here. This is actually a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. When God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a son. In fact, he says, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. Now at the time, Abraham's an old dude. All right, his body don't work like that no more. Okay? They didn't have the little blue pill. All right? And he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do this. And this is the quote then from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was what made him righteous. Not something he did, but the fact that he was willing to believe what God said. Now, uh, Paul then asks the question, yeah, but is this just for Jews or is this for everybody? Jump down with verse 16. He's going to answer that question for us. Verse 16, he says, therefore the promise comes by faith. All right, not by something you do, not by something you follow. It's not by being perfect in how you obey the law. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law. 
but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying, if you want to be an offspring of Abraham, it's not simply whether or not you have Jewish blood running your veins. He says the way that you can actually partake in the faith of Abraham is by believing the same things that Abraham believed, not simply by being born Jewish. It's like, it's not just about following the law. It's about, do you have the same faith that Abraham had? Okay, well, what does he mean by that? Let's drop down to verse 18, and this will take us into the key part of this chapter. Verse 18 through 25, let's read it together. Against all hope. Against all hope. Oh, I love that line. Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6 there. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will also credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That word, to be, called, to be declared righteous again. Uh, I love this. Let me explain why I love this. I love how he starts off where he says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all hope. Remember I told you earlier that, that faith, the faith that God calls us to, sometimes it flies in the face of the reality that we can see around us. The things that seem so real to us God asks us to believe what he says, that what he says is more true than what you can physically see right now. This is actually the faith that Abraham had. And I love how they don't sugarcoat it. Like the text is like not playing around. Now, this is one of the things that I think sometimes is important to understand. Uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. It doesn't mean that we never have doubts, but in spite of the doubts, you continue to believe. In spite of the fact that it might not look like it's true, you continue to believe. That's what Abraham does, right? When we read the text, <laughs> I love it. Uh, he says about Abraham, he faced the fact. What is a fact? A truth, right? I mean, that's what a fact is. A fact is a truth. He faced the truth. And the question becomes then, will Abraham believe that what God says is more true than the truth that he's experiencing right now, right? Abraham is 100 years old. What did Abraham believe in? Abraham did not believe in his 100-year-old sperm. I promise you that. Abraham did not believe in Sarah's 
dried up raisin of a womb. He did not believe in that either. What was it that he believed in then? We read that he believed and was fully persuaded, verse 21 and 22, that God had the power to do what he promised. He looked around and he said, it's impossible. What God has said is impossible unless God does it. I mean, he looks around, he's like, yeah, I'm 100 years old. Man. Things don't work the way they used to. Sarah's, there's no way. She like, we've been well past menopause. But Abraham believes. He says, okay, if God said it, then God's got the power to do it. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it doesn't look like it's possible, I will believe. This is the kind of faith that can rescue you. That is saving faith. Now, there's three ways that Paul describes faith in Romans chapter 4. I want to talk about those three ways really, really briefly. And then I want to give you one final story that I think helps us actually understand what that kind of faith looks like today. So there's three things that Paul talks about that faith is or requires or looks like. Number one, faith is distinct from achievement. It's distinct from the law. You can't be good enough. You can't achieve this kind of faith. It's not about the work that you do or how good you are. There's a lot of people in America that think, if my good deeds are a little bit better than my bad deeds, then I'm cool. God's going to be good with me. But that's not at all what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches all have sinned and fall short of God's perfection, God's glory. And therefore, we all deserve God's wrath. That's not a fun teaching. But it gets good because then God explains how to get out of that, how to actually not. And it's not by working harder. It's by believing in faith. Um, Dr. Douglas Moo says, in our achievement-oriented world, giving faith its necessary central place is difficult. We're tempted to ground our relationship to God in what we do and to begin to think that our doing is so impressive that God will be forced to bless us for it. Such an attitude towards God breeds serious problems. If you're like, God, I've been so good lately, and still I don't have a new job. God, I've, I'm trying so hard, and still you haven't given me a, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a child or a this or a whatever it is. When we think that somehow our good works somehow make God, we've missed out on what the relationship with God is intended to be. Dr. Moose says, God accepts us not because of what we do, but because we have humbled ourselves before him and have received from him the gift of salvation. God's grace loves to lavish us with this gift. The second thing is faith is based on God's word, not on the evidence of our senses. This is a hard one, personally, for me to grab a hold of. I'm just being real, right? I like to like, grab a hold of things that I can see, touch, smell, experience, but the kind of saving faith that actually saves us is grounded in what God's word says, trusting in what God has promised, not necessarily in what I can always see. Dr. Mu says the key to a full-bodied Christian experience is the ability to keep believing day in and day out that the ultimate reality is not what we see around us, but what we cannot see, the spiritual realm. 
He says, like Abraham, therefore, we need to believe against all hope, trusting in God and his promises, even when the evidence goes against it. Friends, this is hard, but it is where salvation is found. This is saving faith. And the third thing is, faith has power not in itself, but because of the one in whom we place our faith. It's not just simply that you have faith in something. It's all about what you place your faith in. Every single person has faith. You can't live the human experience without having faith. It's all about what you put your faith in. So um, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard the name Jean-Francois Gravelet? Nobody. What about the name The Great Blondin? Still nobody. All right, fine, fair enough. Uh, watch this little video. You'll find out who this cat is, and then I want to share a story about him. Some 25,000 onlookers had turned out on June 30th, 1859, as a flamboyant mustache Frenchman known as the Great Blondin stepped out onto a three-inch cord that stretched across roaring Niagara Falls. They were in high spirits, curious to see if the daredevil would become the first person to cross the chasm on a tightrope, or if he would plummet to his death. Either way, it would be a day to remember. Blondin had been born as Jean-Francois Gravelet and had been an acrobat since childhood, raised in the circus tents of Europe. He knew his craft, and the showman had no doubt he would be successful. It was not bravado. It was merely something he took to be a fact. And as history shows, he not only crossed the 1,500-foot-wide falls without a stumble, but even paused to perform a back somersault on his return trip. The breathless crowd erupted into wild cheers when he set his feet on firm ground. The Great Blondin would cross the gorge eight times over the next decade, all with theatrical variations, blindfolded on stilts, but most often trundling a small wheelbarrow. As you can imagine, crowds flocked to see him, and he began to draw loyal devotees. Loyal devotees. So on one particular day when he was doing this feat, and there were tons and tons of people there, uh, one journalist said that the crowds were getting, like, really raucous. Uh, where he had set up the rope uh, was close enough to the bridge that people would, like, hang out all over the bridge, yelling at him, and he was actually close enough to one of the sides, I think it was the Canadian side at that point, but I can't remember exactly, and those crowds could hear him as well. And so they're all hooping and hollering, and the great Blondin stops and raises one of his hands. The crowd quiets down, and he yells out to them, Do you believe I could push a person across in this wheelbarrow? And the crowd yells out, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, yeah, because they've seen him do it already once, and he's coming back across now. And so he then quiets him down again, and he says, who will get in the wheelbarrow? True story. And they're quiet. <laughs> Not a single person raises their hand, says a word, right? Y'all know it's like when the teacher's like, you know, asking a question and everybody all of a sudden doesn't make eye contact, like looking down, like. And finally, one guy 
raises his top hat. The guy is actually Blondin's manager. His name is Harry Colcord. Now, at first I thought maybe they had like worked this out ahead of time because Blondin was known to do crazy stuff. All right, literally he made an omelet, no joke, carried a little stove out onto the middle of the tightrope, uh, made an omelet and then lowered it down to the boat, the maid of the mist, and uh, somebody down there ate it. True story, all right? So I thought, oh, maybe they had already talked about this ahead of time. But as it turns out, the whole thing just happened uh, by accident. It was because of the crowd yelling, and Blondin just stops, and he says, who will get in? So he makes it all the way across, but that day he does not take Colcord across in the wheelbarrow. Uh, they hadn't practiced, they hadn't tried anything, so he, he won't do it. But he does say, come back in two weeks, and I will cross this tightrope with Colcord. Two weeks later, media from all over comes, so many people lined up, because now it's not just Blondin that's going to die, right? That's what they're there for. Nobody wants to see you get across. They want to see you die. That's why they're there. Now they think it's not just him, but the manager's going down too. And on that day, back in, I think it was 1869, Blondin takes Colcord across on his back. Uh, Colcord was actually uh, about the same weight, maybe even a little heavier, than Blondin was. Now, that's all spectacular and fun and interesting, right? But the reason that I told you this story is because of what Blondin said to Colcord just before they made this attempt. Blondin told his friend, Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Friends, that is an illustration of the kind of saving faith that Paul's talking about here. It's not simply a faith that says, all right, I guess I'll kind of give mental assent to this thing. Yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. Yeah, I guess that happened. It's the kind of faith that says, I will get on Blondin's back and I will trust Blondin that when he sways, I will sway with him. I might be scared to death, but I'll jump on anyway, trusting that he's the one that can actually get me across safely to the other side. That's biblical saving faith. And I don't care if you grew up in the church. I don't care if you've known about Jesus your whole life. If you've never said, God, I will put my faith 100% in you, then that is the calling that I believe God is asking you to make today. 
the question I want to ask all of us is whose back are you clinging to? Whose back are you actually clinging to? Is it your own thinking that you can somehow figure this out? Is it some religious system thinking, well, if I just do the right things, that's what's going to get me there? Or are you willing to say, you know what? I don't get it all. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. And sometimes when I look around me, God, you don't seem to be in control. And God, I wonder if you can actually do what you say, but because you said it, I'm going to believe. Even if everybody else makes fun of me, even if it's hard, even if, even if, even if, God, I will believe. And if that's you this morning and you want to make that declaration, I want to pray for you. If you're like, you know what, man, I'm in today. Like today is, I'm going to, I want that. Then I just want to pray for you. And I'm, I know we got like, nobody's like, usually pastors like, bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't even care. If that's you and you just like, hey, pray, pray for me. I need, I need some courage. I need to make that. Just raise your hand out so I can see. And I'm, I'm going to know and I'm going to pray for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Father God, I will admit that um, I have doubts. <laughs> I will admit that there are times that I look around the reality that I can see and it doesn't line up with what you've said. But God, I have had enough evidence in my life. I've seen you enough times to trust that what you say, you have the power to do. And so God, today, today I publicly acknowledge that I am climbing on your back, that I'm holding on to you, that I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death and resurrection. And I will not try to be good enough. I will not pretend that I can make this happen on my own. I put my trust in you that what you said you can do, you will do. No matter what anybody says, I'll hold on. Thank you, Jesus. That is my prayer today. And I know it is the prayer of so many others in this room. We believe, we choose to believe. It is in your beautiful and powerful name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. Friends, we have an opportunity right now to to just remind ourselves of the power and the beauty that comes in the death and resurrection of Christ. And we do that by taking communion, to be reminded of what he gave, the sacrifice he made, And it was that blood, his body broken, his blood poured out that actually allowed us, allowed us to have the price paid, our sins forgiven. So today we will remember that as we take communion together, as we close our morning.